Hello and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm your host, Peggy Hughes, and we're so glad that you've joined us for this episode in which we consider different aspects of the publishing world from the perspective of an author, an agent and a publisher. It's a very curious time for the books world at the moment as bookshops in England are about to open on the 15th of June and hopefully soon after in Scotland too. To get the inside track on what's happening, we speak to two of Scotland's publishing and agenting luminaries, aka Jenny Brown from Jenny Brown Associates and Francis Bickmore, publishing director of Canongate Books. But first, we get the view from the other side of the publishing world with renowned author Michelle Roberts. Her new book is Negative Capability, a diary of a challenging time that explores her wrestling with the rejection of a novel and the attempt to craft a writerly identity when the usual markers have gone. In this candid and refreshingly honest account, Michelle delves into the daily world of what it is to be an artist and how she copes with this unexpected rejection. But we also talk about Mother Julian, about readers, about the process of writing. But I start by asking her about the notion of negative capability which is a concept that takes in the idea of mystery and suspension and the ability to be in a state of doubt and uncertainty how has lockdown been for you i guess first of all has it been full of mystery and suspension it's been full of mystery in that um, we can't be sure of the future and that can feel very frightening so the idea of negative capability has helped me a lot because that means not striving to understand or be in control or be in charge and in lockdown that's been very much the feeling for me of not knowing what the future holds, whether there is a future, lots of terror and anxiety. And of course, there's been another side, which is learning to relax about it all and relishing long, lovely phone calls with friends. And, you know, it's been positive as well. Mm. Is that a, a sort of concept or a presiding notion that you've always had, Michelle, or is that something that in writing the book has become more pressing for you, would you say? I think the idea of negative capability has come back and forth in my life but I kept forgetting about it when I thought I didn't need it probably and when I was just trotting along and life was more or less okay at a time a few years ago of crisis and struggle I picked up a volume of Keats's letters and found him explaining in a letter the idea of negative capability which he as it were invented and he said it was being able to be in a state of yes not being in control not anxiously striving after fact and reason but being in doubts and mysteries and it just felt like a message (laughs) from Keats in the beyond of this is how you cope with very difficult times in your life you sort of swim in dark water you accept that these are very hard times and you just stop fretting so much it's been invaluable to me and I hope I'll keep practicing it in the future because I'm sure I shall need it again I don't think we as humans are very good at uncertainty but there is something rather mother Julianish about the whole thing you know kind of all will be well we'll just kind of keep that as a, as a fixed point and hope. Yes, that's it. And I think that is a good thing because hope actually um, releases in us some sort of doggedness and determination, what I call bloody-mindedness, the life force. And that's very different from a kind of quietude, just, you know, lying back and saying, oh, well, I'll give up. I'll just float on this current towards death. I don't think Keats meant that. I think he absolutely did mean let your deepest self, as it were, sustain you and look after you. And that is very close to Mother Julian, I think. How did that become the title and, and sort of leading us into a little bit more about the book at large, which started life as from a place of, of disappointment. What, what happened a few years ago was that 
several crises all came together. So I had a crisis in my professional life of a novel being rejected, crisis in my personal life of splitting up with somebody I'd been with for five years, crisis in friendship, a very, very old friend and I were having a spat. And one night, all these difficulties seemed to explode in my mind. And I felt I just lost it. I, I felt I came adrift from myself. I was lying in bed, no longer knew who I was, where I was, what the time was. It was really, really frightening. And I hung on to this idea as like a spa when you're drowning in the sea and a bit of wood bobs by. I thought, if I could write about this, if I could gather up all these scattered, spilt, broken parts of myself and of my world, if I could write about them, I could perhaps reconstruct a world to live in and also a self to live in that world. I just hung on to that. It was like a, yeah, a line being chucked to me in the sea where I was drowning. And the next morning I got up and I felt sane again, which was wonderful, I can tell you. But I thought, no, I must do what I said I would do. I'm going to write about this. So I decided to write a diary because I thought, well, just writing about the one day in which everything exploded and went wrong, that might not hold me together for long enough. I think I need to keep doing this for longer. So I decided to write a diary taking one day a month for a year and just to write down or try to everything that happened in that day. And then at the end of the year, see what I'd got. I wasn't thinking about publication at all. This was just for me to try and put myself back together again. You know that Humpty Dumpty when he falls off the wall? I felt like this eggshell Humpty Dumpty that had just smashed. So the diary writing a day a month, was picking up these bits and fitting them together, as well as writing about the day that had just passed. And at the end of the year, I found I had a, a narrative, um, a narrative of a year. And that meant to me I had a self again, because the self is constructed, I think, partly by memory and by a sense of personal history. So I got that back. I mean, speaking of eggshells and brokenness, I suppose, the kintsugi, which is the, the Japanese, when they paint in the broken bits, and that makes it more beautiful and whole again. Is that... That's it. Exactly. Funnily enough, before I knew of that concept, that was an image I had for writing novels because I always saw my novels as made out of bits I found, bits of pottery that I stuck together. And I always had this image of perhaps I'm recomposing a jar or a vase, but I don't know what the original was like because it's gone, it's shattered. All I've got are these bits and I'm going to make something. And yes, I'll show the cracks. I'll leave the cracks showing. And then some years later, when I read about that Japanese concept, I was thrilled to bits because I thought, well, obviously it's an image of creativity in the world. And that's very comforting and very inspiring that lots of us have had this idea. I wonder how then you go about really taking that kind of what was a hugely challenging time and high passions and, and that kind of living passionately, I suppose. How do you transpose that onto a page? What's the actual process, I suppose, like for you? Well, funnily enough, writing in the first person about yesterday, because every chapter in the book starts yesterday. It was simple memory, but I also seem to release a sense of humour to some extent. And I've found that my tragedies were quite bittersweetly comic. And so the writing seemed to depend partly on observing very closely or remembering very closely what I'd seen, felt, observed, heard, what people had said, but also letting out some kind of relish, some sort of comic relish of the absurdities of my life. You know, it wasn't a high tragedy all the time. And thinking about those 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 yesterdays being so much needed nearer the present moment than you know reading paper houses today which is in the sort of more distant past what would you say are the challenges and risks in writing a, a memoir that's much closer to the point of time where I mean we we all know what it is to be in Morrison's that's much on everyone's mind I think supermarkets and and you know Airbnb botherations I mean what 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 were those considerations like 
Well, I suppose in a way I wasn't having to worry about what other people would think of it because I wasn't thinking I would publish it. It was just for me. And so the delight in writing a diary rather than a memoir, a diary is very close to you and very immediate, as you're saying. It was the freedom to be very honest, I think, and to say to myself, yes, everyone has to go to the supermarket and everyone has to think about what they're going to have for lunch. And so I can enjoy thinking about this and I can be as precise as possible and make it valuable. And what I discovered writing the diary was that everything that happens in a day can be precious and valuable if you decide to give it a value. So in the culture that we live in, there's a strong sense of what matters and what doesn't matter. And there's a lot of stress on success or being young, being beautiful, being confident, being okay, feeling fine. Most of that didn't apply to me. What I was giving value to was traveling on the bus and the amazing things people say into their mobiles when they think no one's listening. And it was even like looking at the curb and seeing litter and being interested in that. It was this beautiful freedom to say that everything matters and everything is of equal value. And I'm going to try and convey that. That's a a Latin phrase that I've recently learned in lockdown, which sort of is a little bit what you've just been talking about, multum in parvo, that, you know, lots in little. That's lovely. And thank you for reminding me of that. I'd forgotten it. I think I might have learned that from my O-level, but I've forgotten Uh, it. (laughs) There we go. So just sort of um, sticking then to that kind of idea of it not initially in your mind having a reader and then now it does. Hopefully lots have lots of readers. Is there a curious dissonance or was there a, a treatment to the book to change any elements? Well, luckily, I'm in a small writer's group with two other writers, Jenny and Sarah. And in the end, I started showing them the chapters that I had been writing. It was invaluable getting the feedback from two other writers, helping me do that sharpening up process. They didn't censor anything and they didn't want me to take anything out. And that encouraged me then to send it to my agent and he liked it. And then he thought we should try and publish it. So there was a kind of process of, uh, of readers before it went out into the world. And um, with most of what I write, I do find that a very helpful process that, you know, I trust other writers. I think your peer group are the crucial people and, and of course, your agent. And then if you're lucky enough to have a publisher, you know, that's marvellous. You trust the publisher too. I, d- I did want to ask you about readers more generally, because this book explores that market of readers, as it were, you know, that creative impulse versus being published and market forces and the consumer at the other end. I guess that wasn't in your mind for this book, but more generally, how do you get that balance correct between your own creative impulses and what the reader may or may not want? I've never, never, this will sound horribly arrogant, but here goes. I've never been a writer who believes that you should write to the market because if you try and please the market, they would have changed their minds by the time you've written the book you're hoping will please them. I've always believed you've got to write the book that is the book you really, really want to write. Because if you didn't really want to write it, you wouldn't bother spending two years of your life (laughs) beavering away. So that's my stance, and it's pretty uncompromising. And it does mean that I will then sometimes have a struggle with a publisher about the editing process or what's suitable, because this diary, this book, Negative Capability, is very much about a novel that I wrote that my then publisher rejected and my struggles to work out what she had said that could be of value to me in rewriting it and what I needed to put aside and think, no, that's not valuable for me. And that's the struggle a writer has, that publishers necessarily are living in a commercial world, that they're capitalists, they're entrepreneurs, they need to make a living. And we, the writers, are producing the raw material. We're the artists. 
And we don't necessarily produce the raw material that publishers want. And it's got worse and worse, I think, because book selling is now um, pure capitalism and books are commodities, you know, pile them high. Uh, when I was starting out as a young writer, there was a, a concept of literature, which was, you know, a rather lovely thing. And um, one served <laughs> literature and there were publishers who wanted to publish literature. Now, I think literature is practically a dirty word. And most publishers are forced to think in very commercial terms. I mean, I'm extremely lucky that Sandstone aren't like that. They are a very prestigious small firm and they take on books they simply love and want to publish. And that's wonderful for a writer because a lot of the bigger publishers, it's not like that. I suppose just finally then, in terms of the book being a, a sort of search, as it were, was it cathartic to write? Did you get to the other the other end? You've obviously got to the other end in one piece. Yes, well, I think what it is, I like one of those pots. I'm put back together again with all the joins showing, and that's fine. Um, that helps, actually, to know that one can be vulnerable, one can be fragile, and one can mend oneself. And I think I've ended up feeling you know, sort of a bit smaller and humbler and um, (laughs) more, I don't know, every day, let's see what this brings. Let's just, yes, let's just see what happens today. (laughs) That that will do. (laughs) Thank you so much to Michelle. Negative Capability is published by the wonderful Sandstone Press and is available to buy from all good independent bookshops. Speaking of which, moving into the view from the publishing world, we thought we'd ask Wigtown Creative Director Adrian Turpin to chat to two of the leading figures in Scotland's publishing world, just to get their view on life under lockdown and what the impact has been on writers and the publishing sector. Francis Bickmore, Publishing Director of Canongate Books, and Jenny Brown, Agent Extraordinaire at Jenny Brown Associates and founder of the Edinburgh International Book Festival, share their thoughts with Adrian. So I'm going to start with Francis. How publishers been affected? Has Canongate been affected by the situation over the past few months? Because we hear a couple of things. On the one hand, we hear that people are reading a lot more than they used to. They've taken this opportunity to read. And on the other hand, you're obviously not being able to get your books into shops and having to rearrange your schedules. It is a paradox because, as you say, on the one hand, everybody has um, a little bit more time. They're not going out to the cinema or uh, going out to restaurants or traveling so much less. And there's a sense of time at home, which many people are finding gives them an opportunity to read. Meanwhile, there are all sorts of concerns about financial security and the access to bookshops, which has been so very restricted. Bookshops have been shut since April. We do now have the green shoots of a a date for opening of bookstores this month in June in England, and we hope the same will happen soon in Scotland. But availability of books has has been restricted to online only. And it's certainly hit publishers' front list in a big way, which means that based on Canongate's experience and and the experience of other publishers we've spoken to, sales of front list books have gone down. What has gone up is, as you might expect, uh, sales of e-books and sales of audiobooks. And my personal inkling is that reading has gone up, but perhaps people are turning to copies of books they've got on their shelves that they've meant to read for years. And I've certainly been doing that. So there's certainly been a hiatus in the publishing calendar. And not only have sales gone down, publishers have responded by moving many books out of the second quarter of this year into the second half of the year and sometimes out of the year. And that's put the cat amongst the pigeons when it comes to the publishing schedules and publicity. How has it affected writers to be in this this position, this kind of uncertainty of, of the publishing world at the moment? 
I've experienced a lot of anxiety from authors during this time because all their events have been cancelled, all the live events. And then, of course, some have been going on to become virtual events, but most haven't happened. Authors' incomes have gone down dramatically. Society of Authors recently did a survey of authors and most 60% of them said they had lost significant income during this time. And of course, this is before the royalty statements will come out at the end of September again for this period. And we all know the sales are dramatically down of their books. So a lot of my work has been during this period trying to find ways of supporting writers through the Society of Authors and ALCS launched a scheme. Creative Scotland have had bridging bursaries for artists and quite a number have availed themselves of that help. But I must also say that it's been, for some writers, a terrific time to get on and write without the distraction of going to the Hay Festival or going abroad for book tours. And so it has given that concentrated period. So it hasn't all been doom and gloom. And I have sold a number of books during this period Almost all of them have been nonfiction by established writers. It's been much more difficult to get publishers to consider work by brand new writers. And have you found that it's been a good time to sort of pause to think about what you're doing and the decisions that you make and what you're choosing to, to get behind? Yes, I think it has. I mean, it's a, it's a very good time to reflect. I've been hearing from various bits of the book trade that suddenly we have kind of fast forwarded 10 years. We're catapulted into 2030 in terms of how books are going to be noticed and bought in the future. You know, there's Waterstones.com has done an amazing job in boosting its sales from, you know, probably a quite a modest base, but they've reached out to consumers, sent out emails a number of times a week with news about books, what's coming out, what you can pre-order. And there, I think their sales, Francis, correct me if I'm wrong, are up some like 400%. It does not compensate for the lack of the book sales that would have happened in store. But suddenly, all that's happening. A lot of independent publishers have got their own e-retailing up and running and are selling direct to the consumer. And I think we'll see even more of that in the future. Because I, th I think there was one idea, wasn't there, that the publishers in general had seen how vulnerable they were with the supply chains that existed at the moment. And, and so presumably a lot of them will be looking to, to ways of marketing far more directly, I would imagine. On the other hand, I can see publishers will be doing everything they can to support the bookshops when they reopen in England on the 15th of June and finding ways in terms of returns, about being more flexible on discount and trying to really get behind those titles to make sure that people go into the shops to buy them. There's that old adage that you don't miss your water till your well runs dry. And I think this has really brought home quite how much we love our bookshops just not only for access to buying books in our local area, but but for the sense of community, for the sense of solidarity and recommendations and the, and the advice that a good local uh, bookshop can provide us when we don't quite know what we want to read next. And we don't want an algorithm necessarily to tell us what that might be. And so, yes, there's, there's a huge amount of, I think, loyalty to those independent bookshops. As many people know, the independent bookshop scene has been going from strength to strength in the last couple of years. Um, really, despite the odds, we're really keen as publishers to keep supporting that sector so that it thrives long after the pandemic. And what do you think, Francis, is going to come out of this in terms of work? You know, everyone jokes that we're going to have a sort of slew of lockdown novels, lockdown 
lockdown poetry and that everyone's going to be absolutely sick of this as it gushes towards them over the next next year. Do you think that's true or do you think people will react to it in a rather more lateral way? Well, it's a very interesting question imagining not just all the babies that will be born after lockdown, but the book babies that will be born and will they all bear resemblance to one another? You know, culturally, it's a fascinating moment because more than any recent experience in, in um, Scotland or England in recent years, this is an experience that we're all going through together and many people um, will be in very different situations. Some people working in hospitals, some people furloughed, some people staying at home, but, but there is a sense that we're all experiencing the same historical moment and uh, I think that can be very interesting in terms of what the concerns of the nation are. As far as the the topics they might cover, judging by book sales, it seems that books that deal with uncertainty and non-fiction and that deals with uncertainty and anxiety have been doing extremely well. In our case, a writer like Matt Haig wrote a book called Notes on a Nervous Planet, which was all about facing uncertainty in the age of social media and scrolling news. And that book's seen a great uptake. I think people are considering mental health in a much more acute way, not least as some of the ways that we help our own mental health, our quality of mental health are forbidden to us, you know, socializing with friends and going out and enjoying an event, a book festival or a piece of music uh, just can't happen at the moment. So so books that deal with, with mental health seem to be thriving. Cookbooks are thriving. Kids books are, um, are doing incredibly well since the homeschooling all happened. Um, it was the kids sector of the market occupied a far bigger proportion of the top 5,000 copies sold in the UK than it had ever done recently. And I think people are considering options of sustainability uh, more. And this is obviously a necessary shift in culture over the last five years. But there's something about the slowing down of some of the mechanisms of capitalism that have happened as a result of this pandemic that I think are making people much more curious about ideas of a more sustainable model for themselves individually, but also for their businesses. And perhaps they don't need to be flying around the world quite so much. Perhaps perhaps a Zoom call will do. I think this idea that this is sort of great singular moment that we've got perhaps the first since the Second World War in a funny kind of way. And when you look at novels that came out of the Second World War, so many of them spoke to class, for example, as much as they, as much as they spoke about war. Um, Jenny, have you already been approached by writers with ideas that have come directly out of the lockdown experience? Yes, it's funny, isn't it? Because actually, I don't really want to be reading about it right now. Um, A fellow agent I was talking to said on one day, she had two separate submissions from two different writers, and both of them were called virus, exclamation mark. And she just said, that's those aren't for me. So I don't know that we will be immediately wanting to uh, read dystopian books about uh, the virus. I've been interested to see how well crime fiction has been doing during the lockdown. Why is that? And it's probably to do with the fact that they are terrific, very absorbing stories. They've got quite a simple problem compared to the sort of really huge problems out in the out in the world. There are simple problems and there's a resolution at the end of them. So I've been hearing a lot of people talking about either reading contemporary crime novelists or going back to their kind of golden age of the Agatha Christie's. A lot of uplifting fiction, the sort of trend we saw starting, I guess, with the Ellen Oliphant. That, I think, has continued the sort of book that uh, reading material that people want to be reading. 
I think we'll see even more of that in the future. I saw that James Daunt was saying, noting a huge appetite at the moment for books that speak to our better natures. That's a very interesting idea that out of this depressing period, we're, we're, all, we're all looking for things to make us feel good about humanity. Yeah. And, and, and there's no doubt about it that people need stories more than ever. And the people surveyed have read almost double during this lockdown than they have before. So if we just, yeah, if we could just make sure to get the books to them, whether it's through publishers' websites, through the, let's hope even more than anything, the high street bookshops. And as soon as those bookshops are open, of course, the front list titles will again start to do well. What is the one thing that's come out of this experience that will change the way that you approach your, your job, Jenny, that your task of finding and nurturing new authors? One thing that really strikes me is the way uh, working with publishers, it's the other, the other side of things, is that you know, I have now, we're now all on Zoom. The beginning of March, never heard of Zoom. Now, you know, it's a feature of our lives every day. I think many publishers have realised how easy it is to work at home. And what will that mean in terms of London-centric publishing? Will we find that now publishers encourage staff to be working all over the United Kingdom? And what will that mean in terms of the kind of books that are taken on. I mean, there's been a lot about diversity in the last week or so in publishing spheres. And one of the great arguments is, you know, why have publishers, very, very honourable exceptions to this, I must say, but why have many publishers not gone seeking out those voices? And if publishers are, if staff are based all over the UK, things will change. And it's very interesting for me, being an agent based in Scotland, to be dealing with publishers who are no longer seeing things quite so uh, much through a London lens. Callangate, a fantastic exception to this, I must say, but it's true of many. Um, And Francis, what are you looking forward to specifically coming out later in the year? Just on that last point about about the kind of discoveries and what we might do differently, I was I was inspired by hearing Jenny talk, and there is this great sense of a renewed connection with the local and the hyper local. And one of the books that we're publishing in August this year is an anthology of new nature writing from Scotland, edited by the extraordinarily talented uh, poet and essayist Kathleen Jamie. The dozen or so contributors to this are all writers from Scotland writing about the very specific local area in which they live or have lived. And it strikes me that actually the more specific one becomes about noticing closely one's local area, the more universal a piece of writing can become. And that paradox, I think, is going to continue to inform our acquiring, you know, this this sense that actually you can be writing about a particular valley on the Shetland Isles and that can make great literature and that sense of it's all about noticing closely, which is what the job of the writer is really to do and to communicate. And that also ties in with the wonderful Nan Shepherd, whose Living Mountain is such a case in point of that close noticing of the uh, flora and fauna of the Cairngorms and the, and the way it makes a person feel to be amongst those mountains. And this ties in with also with a prize which we began last year. And I, I feel, you know, after lockdown, we intend fully to continue with this prize in future years and grow this, which is the Nan Shepherd Prize for New Writing. It's a a prize that seeks to find writers 
in the area of nature writing who uh, might previously have felt excluded from doing so. Uh, it's a genre, as you know, Adrian, that has been dominated by uh, largely white men going out and kind of standing on a hill and, and conquering the hill and reporting back. And actually, now's a wonderful time to be including more writers from a geographical uh, range of locations and from broader ethnicity and including writers who might have felt they weren't invited to this discussion for reasons of class or uh, or gender or sexuality. So I'm really excited about the hyperlocal going forward. And, um, and I would pick out Kathleen Jamie's book, Antlers of Water, as uh, a really special book to watch out for this August. exciting to have a book edited by Kathleen Jamie that's such great news and hugely exciting for, for fans of hers thank you so much to um, Jenny and Francis for their insights there I hope you found them as interesting as we did and let's just see how many lockdown book babies do come out of this whole time and that's a wrap for this episode thank you to Michelle Roberts for joining us and of course to Jenny Brown and to Francis Bickmore and of course to you for joining us again we hope that you enjoyed it and we hope that you'll tune in again next time Take care, be well, bye-bye.